1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Archaeo-Animals, the show all about zoo archaeology. With you as always, it's me, Simona Falanga, and with me also, Alex Fitzpatrick, and this is episode 59. Elephants or Cyclops? The Mistaken Identity of Animal Bones.
3: It's a very special episode because it's one of our all case study episodes, baby. If
2: you do have that bingo card that never was, that's case study.
3: You can take it off right there. I think it's funnier if we just never make a bingo card (laughs) and then we just keep saying it. I don't know, just spitballing here, or giving excuse to laziness. I don't know. So we're going to be looking at the mistaken identity of animal bones, or more formally referred to by Adrian Mayer, who also coined this phrase, the folklore of paleontology. So basically, it's the study of kind of folklore and mythology that's associated with fossils. You know, usually pre the formal development of paleontology and archaeology. And it basically uses archaeology and folklore studies and anthropology and history to understand how past peoples thought about animal remains.
2: And and we like as a good, like multidisciplinary discipline.
3: We do like an interdisciplinary discipline. (laughs) Interdisciplinary discipline. Do you know how hard it's so hard to spell that, huh?
2: We do bingo and tongue twisters.
3: Yeah, I have to always like word check it. What's the word? What do you call it on word spell check? That's the one. I use computers, but yes, so we might as well get to it. And I feel like, and it's the name, kind of the name of the type, the name of the title, doing really well today. It's (laughs) the name of the episode so it's probably not surprising we're gonna start with the Cyclops
2: yeah because I guess yeah the way we're gonna do this yes it's an, an all-case study episode because we're just going to cover a variety of mythological creatures from various parts of the world and just try to figure out where sort of the existence of these creatures may have originated from. And whether it is from fossils or not from fossils, or both.
3: Yeah, and I think the Cyclops story is one that's very well known. It's a bit of a fun fact that kind of floats around, and I think even if you're not necessarily in classical studies or paleontology or archaeology, you people know about it. I should
2: have heard, if anything, probably like in, in sort of fantasy sort of Mm-hmm. various sources, whether it's like novels or series, I'm sure there's cyclops in there. But the cyclops we're going to be talking about is the 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 one eyed giant of Greek and Roman mythology specifically. Arguably most famous from Homer's The Odyssey. So of course there's the whole story where Odysseus or Ulysses <laughs> which one do we go with?
3: You know what? you are the 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 most Closest to that, you do it. I'm just gonna stick with Ulysses.
1: Yeah, you're you're our Roman. You know that
3: uh, Greeks, uh, Roman, same thing. Romans. There you Ooh. go. There you go. <laughs> so, at one
2: point, Ulysses encounters a cyclop called Polyphemus, which he does trick in a way. You know, like no spoilers. Go read it for yourself. Although. <laughs>
3: Spoilers for a very old piece of text. He may have had time to catch up, but we're spoiling it now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, like
2: basically, he, the, he tells him that his name is no one, and then he blinds him. So then when the Cyclops tries to like cry for help with the other Cyclopses and uh, tries to get Ulysses apprehended, he keeps saying, like, no one took my eye out. No one took my eye out. So... Yeah, didn't work out too great. But fun fact: we don't know exactly where those events took place, but one, like several of the locations that have been put forward, are in Sicily. One of which, very very close to where I'm from, because mm-hmm. so we actually have a—it's oh, about twenty-minute drive at a push from where I'm from. But we have a grotto, like a cave, called literally Polyphemus's Cave. Mm-hmm. That's located directly, basically underneath where the castle sits. So before you think, oh, I I, I would quite like to see that, it's on private
3: land and you can't. So there you go. I have seen photos of it. It's one of those things I remember very well from when I did my undergraduate in classical archaeology.
2: Yeah, because I think there's several sort of, uh, because Polyphemus is meant to be from the city, or or the city or the settlement of the Cyclopses, but it's not exactly specified where so like several candidates have been put forward i think some of the at the foothills of the etna and one of them is in this I guess very large village slash small town called Milazzo. and mm, yeah okay. there's this cave right underneath the castle where the castle sits and citadel but yeah private land so sars so going back to cyclops proper othenia abel Uh, an Australian paleontologist, proposed in 1914 that the Cyclops may have actually come from finding dwarf elephant skulls, which, guess what, were found extensively in Sardinia
3: and Sicily, mainly in cave deposits. And also, this is something we kind of talked about already in our last episode, for those of you who actually listened to all the episodes, when we talked about Hannibal's elephants. Yes. (laughs) Did you have to just remember that?
2: (laughs) No, sorry, my mind went back to the, uh, was it the camels disguised as elephants?
3: Oh, yes. Well, that was obviously the more important message that we got across in that episode. But yes, we also did talk about, because obviously Hannibal did bring his elephants over um, into the uh, Italian peninsula, and there was loads of elephant skulls that they found. And one of the important things from that conversation was that It was kind of the first identification of elephants that were potentially extinct that they'd found, which is really cool. And it's actually stemming off of some of the investigations from the Cyclops kind of theory, where identification of the skulls that were found in caves that may have been seen as Cyclops type creatures it was finally proposed by italian archaeologists i'm not gonna say it you say it simona giovanni giustino Ciampini. thank you in 1688 who was actually like considered like an ecclesiastical archaeologist in his time so yeah the uh, italian archaeologists were really on top of kind of a lot of this early zoo archaeological investigation which is very cool has
2: been uh, so sort of determined whether the cyclop skulls, like sort of where, sort of derived from the finding of dwarf elephant skulls or just normal sized elephant skulls.
3: I think it's specifically a species of dwarf elephant. I don't think they've actually got it down to a particular taxa. That was my understanding. Well, I guess it would make sense least. for cave deposits. So,
2: like yeah. a lot of the Pleistocene elephants found in Sicily were, well. Very, very well, they're much smaller in size than sort of the elephants that we have today due to yeah. sort of that island effect where the megafauna got much, much, much smaller in not just in Sicily, but just island environments due to it not being perhaps as much food to eat. While the what we would consider, so sort of, well, not necessarily the microfauna, but the smaller fauna being quite a bit bigger than you expect. So yeah, like the elephants were actually sort of the size of a, probably a very large dog. Uh, but if you want to know more, there is a whole. We've done a whole episode on Pleistocene
3: mammalian remains, so do check it out. So this actually leads in nicely because let's be real. Even if they were dwarf elephant skulls, they were still much bigger than, say, human skulls, which conjures those ideas of you know a cyclops, a large giant, and again just to also explain that where the kind of nasal cavity ish area is is where people would think is where the eye would sit because it's like so almost dead on in the skull but it also follows into our next kind of topic, which is giants. And we'll see a little bit of overlap as far as kind of fossil evidence for these kind of creatures. So, giants, pretty self explanatory. And we've also kind of talked about them, I think, in previous episodes, but they're really big guys that are found in lots of mythology all around the world, from Greek gigantes to Norse jotun. So,. One of those things that you kind of just see. It's not really specific to any culture. And most likely, like in the Cyclops case, some evidence of, you know, appearances of giants is probably from people in the past seeing things like a dwarf elephant skull or other elephant skulls or mammoth uh, skulls or, you know, even just random bones of mammoths or even whale bones, obviously, especially. Things like the vertebrae are big and even though they are particular to the animal they're from as, as far as what they look like, they're still roughly kind of the similar regardless of what animal you're looking like. So it's kind of like if you know what a human vertebra looks like and you see a whale bone and you've never seen a whale or you've never seen a whale vertebra before, you can understand how that kind of logic leap goes forward. So, for instance, in Crete, bones of the giant Orion was
2: found and described by a good old friend, Pliny the Elder, who's going to make a lot of appearances throughout the episode. I also feel he should be on the bingo cards. Yeah. Bones of the giant, sort of Pallas and Orestes were also found in Rome and Mesopotamia, which are based on Herodotus' writings. Going to Herodotus' place of birth, Greece, in Samos, massive bones were excavated that may have been traced back to a mythological battle between a camel, disguised. no, Uh, between (laughs) Dionysus. You're never going to get over that. (laughs) Never. never. Also on the bingo card. But no, they, they thought they may have found the traces of a mythological battle between Dionysus and the Amazonians. Plutarch... On the occasion, says that were somewhere identified as Dionysus' giant elephants, which, to be fair, were likely just mastodons. But still, pretty cool. Epic mastodon battle.
3: And it's not just kind of Greece and Rome that we're looking at. More broadly, in Europe, specifically kind of northern Europe and central Europe, giant prehistoric bones such as mammoth bones often were collected by churches as proof of the kind of race that existed in the time before the flood, specifically the flood that was the event that Noah's Ark was created for. So it's not just that kind of mythology. It's also kind of religious events and lore as well. So in 1728, British physician Han Sloan was finally able to debunk claims of giants by identifying most of them as whale and elephant remains. And interestingly, in the way that this fits into the kind of the development of not just uh, osteology and human biology, but also uh, bioarchaeology, this was kind of part of Sloan's work in early developments in comparative anatomy as he kind of was like hey guys look at a human bone and then look at an animal bone they're slightly different aren't they and that's kind of how he was able to debunk these claims by showing off that the human bones didn't necessarily look that much like these massive bones they were finding even though there were some similarities they still looked very different so they were from different species which is pretty cool
2: (laughs) just like picturing like a treaty like uh, like This bone is not like the other.
3: Yeah, and now that's like 90% of like zoo archaeology. So thanks to Hans Sloan. And to round off our first part of case
2: study, we have a creature that we have discussed before, more with regards to its depictions in video games. But I guess we'll look at the actual (laughs) mythological creature now. And that is the griffin, which is, for those who have not heard of one before, First question is how. Well, the griffin are a mythological creature with body, tail, back of the legs of a lion and the wings and the head of an eagle. Sometimes it has sort of lion-like digits and claws. Sometimes it's depicted having an eagle's talons. Again, much like the creatures we've discussed previously, records of depictions of the griffin are found in several parts of the world And they go back as far as ancient Mesopotamia, classical antiquity, and ancient Egypt, just to mention three. What sort of brings all these places together is that griffins were in general seen as powerful creatures that were often guarding treasures. And speaking of treasure, what a little friend Pliny has to say about it is that griffins...
3: I I thought you were referring to Pliny as the treasure,
2: sorry. Pliny is also a treasure. (laughs) His natural history is absolute gold. Eddie, <laughs> our friend Pliny describes griffins as, well, specifically on their sort of laying habits, that griffins were said to lay eggs in burrows on the ground, and these nests contained gold nuggets.
3: So yeah, not only was it a treasure as far as a, a creature that was hiding or protecting treasure... Uh, Its remains were also believed to have medicinal properties, which is also a recurring theme of this entire episode. So, for instance, in an Italian folktale, griffin feathers were believed to cure blindness. Now, as far as actual kind of fossils, it's been theorized that maybe what people thought were a griffin, or maybe it's something they saw and it helped them kind of visualize what a griffin would look like, is the remains of Protoceratops, which is a late Cretaceous dinosaur. So if you actually, if you look what it looks like, at least in situ, you can kind of see what they mean. Obviously, with dinosaurs, you got the little arms and the kind of big hind legs which kind of fits in a little bit with some depictions of Griffins. And I think it's a really interesting kind of connection, if it was, you know, if it's true, is that it it shows that kind of early linking of dinosaurs, well, not what they thought were dinosaurs, but what actually were dinosaur remains to avian species, or at least avian attributes. There's this idea that people in the past may have seen Protoceratops and have been confused because obviously... Dinosaurs. If you look at their bones, they're kind of a mix. They're not necessarily, you know, something you look at and go, "Oh, that's a reptile." Do you know what I mean? So I think there's this idea that people would find Protoceratops and think, "Oh, that is that a mammal? Is that a bird?" Protoceratops has that kind of beak-like thing at the top of their mouth. So you know, the conclusion would be, "Oh, it's it's both. It's a hybrid creature."
2: I said that would make sense because especially at the time you find remains of a creature that large and you think like there is no bird that is that big exactly. it's not yeah. a thing like so you think like okay but it's so it it must be a mammal because all large animals are mammals odds but it's got bird bits so it's a mammal with bird bits
3: yeah and like it had you know those kind of claws which could be seen as talons there were elements of the body that people probably never seen before so you know Protoceratops, like, you know, the kind of stereotypical triceratops has that kind of like crest thing on its skull. Apologies, we are not paleontologists. I don't know how to describe parts of a dinosaur, but, you know, people would be able to kind of correlate that with, say, ears, you know, in a a griffin or even like bits of the wing if they found fragments. So it's a really interesting way of seeing the logic behind you know looking at this thing and visualizing it and it's it also i think fits in with what we're doing today where we have kind of over the last you know 20 years i've realized dinosaurs look a lot different than what has been popularized in popular culture and i think that'll be something we also touch upon later in this episode but i think we're going to take a break and when we come back we will do more case studies mm-hmm.
0: That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode.
1: Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.
3: And we're back with Archeo Animals, episode 59. We're talking about the folklore of paleontology and zooarchaeology, I guess. But it's probably more heavily towards paleontology, Just basically, what did the people in the past think of fossils when they found it? And we are finally kind of moving away from where we've been in the last part of the episode, you know, in Europe, mainly in Greece and Rome, and we're moving to Japan to talk about the Tengu. Now, the Tengu is a Japanese creature or yokai found in Shinto and Buddhist beliefs. It's depicted as a hybrid creature with human avian and monkey features and more commonly uh, at least today depicted as a creature with a red face and a long nose it was originally kind of seen as a demon but nowadays is kind of more like a trickster that can you know shapeshift and cause pranks or maybe a bit more nefariously kidnap kids and create national d- disasters like avalanches so, mixed bag, I guess. But what is more interesting for us, at least, is the tangu no tsume, also known as the tangu claws, which have been identified as shark teeth, which includes species such as the Pliocene great white shark. Carcardon carcarias. The Miocene mackerel sharks. Isaurus species. And... Of course, even the Megalodon. Carcarocles Megalodon. That's a great way to pronounce Megalodon. Which has, because they're so big, have been identified as claws of the king of the Tengu. And this was actually really interesting because I've never really thought of looking at Shark Teeth, which I feel like is a very common... Like if you go to natural history museums and go to their gift shops, I feel like shark teeth are a very common thing they sell there. But I don't. I would never would have thought about them as being claws. Do they still sell those? I mean, this is me reaching back to like the 1990s, which was about a billion years ago now. So I remember definitely those being about in the 90s. Yeah, I don't know if they do it now, but. <laughs> They did when I was a kid because I definitely had some, which explains a lot about me.
2: Well, next creature, well, it's a creature called the bunyip, which is uh, absolutely not just the cutesy name for a rabbit.
3: Did you think it was a cutesy name for a rabbit? Like, did you know what the bunyip uh, was before? No. Oh, huh? okay.
2: <laughs> no, but bunyip is, uh am not sure if whether it's youth speak or what, but I believe that a cutesy name for rabbits is bunyip as well, which is uh, not at all related to the Australian creature from Aboriginal mythology, that is the bunyip. It is actually an amphibious creature, which is said to lurk sort of in riverbeds, swamps, creeks, water holes. And you get records about the creature sort of throughout Australia, so there's actually several different regional varieties, which go hand in hand with a wide array of physical descriptions. So some accounts describe it as a seal-like creature, or like a dog-like creature that lives in water, which is basically a seal, again, or a long-necked creature with a small head. The interesting thing about this creature is that this is sort of where, because uh, where mythology and cryptids sort of intersect, because you have sort of, in the things, fairly recent accounts of sightings sort of in the 19th century by European settlers that recorded sighting the bunyip.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting because actually I had heard of the bunyip and this is going to be me really exposing myself for the kind of weird nerd I am as a theme park nerd who likes animatronics. I watched a video about really creepy water Animatronics. <laughs> Please don't judge me. I ha- I'm allowed. To- that, 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 that's that's just a Tuesday for me. I- I'm allowed to have hobbies, but one of the things on this like list, you know, because obviously I love people love making those top ten videos, and I am a sucker for them, folks. But one of the uh, things mentioned on the list was Bunyip animatronics, which is apparently there's more than one you know, throughout Australia, and I get why they'd be there. They're very horrifying. If you feel like going to give yourself nightmares, look it up on YouTube. There's still some and they're in various states of rotting because people have just forgotten about them. But it's like a you know it is it's a cryptid, it's kind of still in the pop culture. There in Australia, it's been, you know, it's being made into animatronics. It's really, it's an interesting one to talk about in this episode because I don't think you really say the same for a lot of these. Obviously, a lot of these mythical creatures we're talking about are well-known. They're in stories and fantasy, but I wouldn't necessarily call them cryptids. Or the Pentagon who you talk to, I guess. Yeah, true, true, true. But yeah, feel free to look that up on YouTube if you'd like to really freak yourself out a bit. But a bit more seriously, though, is the bunyip's also a bit of a kind of representation, almost, for the colonialism uh, that has occurred in Australia. In particularly, there is a bunyip head at the Mackley Museum that I believe is in Sydney that was, quote unquote, found in 1841. Turns out it was actually a fetal horse cranium. And when it was originally found, European settlers thought that it was a megafauna creature that was actually what the bunyip was. So this was put on display. But, you know, it was actually a horse cranium that was, had clearly had some kind of genetic disorder. So it was a bit deformed. And so it looked, didn't look like a horse at all. Uh, but interestingly, horses were a colonial import into Australia. So it's this weird kind of poignant clash uh, that represents that whole horrible and continuing state of colonialism, in that it's a colonial import. Made to be a part of Aboriginal mythology in a way, so that's apparently still on display at the Macleay Museum. And they also have a version that they've made that's like taxidermied as well. But yeah, it's oh. like really well. Yeah, that one is pretty horrible to look at. But still, it's uh again, it's a, a less serious note. It's also representative of that cryptid thing, where we, as we've talked about in a previous episode people making fake cryptids and we'll actually talk a bit more about this in a second with uh, our next bit of this episode because we are going to talk about unicorns have we talked about unicorns on the show don't think so they're so i guess we haven't really done an episode on bestiaries yet have we
1: you mean the national animal of scotland very proud of it up here very proud of it it's a legit not, animal. It's not real. Yeah, but have it's you not, seen?
3: Sorry, have you seen
1: some of the state animals and state minerals and state whatevers in America?
3: I think like, ours. I think, is, can, I think ours is a blue jay. No, that's a state bird. What is the state animal?
1: Well, look, it's not. A, what I'm saying is, there's no nothing in the rules to say that the state animal or a country's animal or you know, uh, it has to be real. There's no, there's no, there's nothing in the rules, so.
2: I I, I thought your your national animal was the wild haggis.
1: No, that's the national dish. Oh, is it? (laughs) But I would love to eat unicorn as well if I had a chance.
3: Did you know that in America, each state, we don't have like a state animal. We have like a state bird, mammal, fish, insect, mollusk, tree, wildflower, fossil, and mineral.
1: Mollusk? Like, what about... But does the the bay scallop.
3: The, the bay scallop, by the way, is the New York mollusk.
1: <laughs> well, what's Idaho's mollusk?
3: Who cares about Idaho?
1: Yeah, I'm just saying. How can Idaho's you have an, how, a, a landlocked country with a state mollusk?
3: We're not a very serious country. The state mollusk? <laughs> <if I> no, <know.
1: laughs> <laughs> it's a potato net.
3: No, but it, I believe it might be the Bruno Hot Spring Snail. Of course. I mean, it's a mollusk. It's Uh, a mollusk.
1: (laughs) Idaho Idaho about that. Oh, no.
3: Oh, no, no, no. no, Come on. Okay, right.
1: Back to the show. Back to the
3: show. Mm. Unicorns. Not real. But their horse with a horn. I mean, there's not really much else to it, is there? (laughs) Yep. It's one of those ones where you're kind of like, I can see how someone... Made that.
2: <laughs> it's like, oh, but th- this horse is pretty neat. Let's add this narwhal tusk perfection.
3: Yeah. And that is basically kind of what they did. So unicorns, again, kind of found in a lot of other folklore. The way that we kind of understand unicorns in the Western countries seems to have originated with the Greeks, who actually didn't believe them to be kind of mythological creatures, but they th- Saw them as actual animals found mainly in India. And like I said, they're found basically in lots of other folklore. I believe Japan has a unicorn equivalent, but I think unicorns are probably most famous perhaps in European folklore, particularly medieval and post medieval kind of mythology. AKA, okay, how hey, to swindle someone out of their money. I mean, you gotta respect the grift, you know?
2: <laughs> of course, part of the myths surrounding uh, unicorns were, in fact, the medicinal properties of its horn, referred to as the alicorn, which was originally described by the ancient Greek physician Ctesias in 400 BC as a remedy against poison. Although, you know, like, in folklore, other powers soon grew out of the unicorn horn, which includes disease resistance and water purification, to mention a few. Eventually,
3: powdered, quote-unquote, unicorn horn or alicorn would be lucratively traded in European marketplaces. Apparently, this went for... Big bucks. It was very well sought out for. And finally, in 1638, which feels a bit late for this, uh, <laughs> Danish zoologist Ole Worm. Yes, that's his name. We respect Ole Worm uh, for doing this important work. He recognized, hey guys, this is a not a unicorn. This is actually powdered narwhal tusk. I also want to say we worked it out. Yeah, I mean, apparently he did like literally like examine it and everything but apparently no one really listened to him for like another hundred years like it kept being very much traded in european marketplaces and it also did not stop german naturalist otto von georich from attempting to reconstruct the unicorn verum the true unicorn by using you know a variety of pleistocene mammals like mammoths and woolly rhinoceros, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did not know how powerful the myth of the unicorn was to be completely honest. I feel like I kind of heard that like in reading various texts and alchemy as you do when you're in your early 20s, I feel like I'd seen that mentioned, but I don't think I ever really thought it was a literal thing. <laughs>
2: I'm, I'm still going back on how Olayvorn worked out that it was a gnarled tusk and not a unicorn horn. Did he, I don't know, did he taste it? It's like, oh no, this doesn't taste like powdered unicorn horn. This tastes just like narwhal tusk.
3: The resource that I looked at didn't go too much into detail, but I think it was more of him tracking down people who were trading in narwhal tusks and then were like just powdering it down and selling it off. So probably less of a intensive chemical kind of investigation of properties and more of like oh what's that guy doing with narwhal tusks i mean to a fair in
2: archaeology people were sort of licking the artifacts until very scaringly recently to work out whether it was a pot or a stone listen
3: simona oh. we, don't make fun of me just because i was tricked into doing that on my first <laughs> dig
1: tricked yeah sure like we have to keep this secret from the public if they find diet
3: Okay, Imagine listen, it sounds completely when you are on site for the first time, it's so hot in the Orkneys and someone says, Hey, you know <laughs> oh, what yeah, you know make your time easier is if you just blistering
1: in Scotland, yes. A country terrible. known for its
3: <laughs> How dare you? It was actually it gets really warm in the Orkneys in the summer.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I got Keep so sunburned. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, you you need to use sunscreen, you know.
3: Yeah, well, that was before I moved to a notoriously cloudy, rainy place, and it's just kind of destroyed my skin. That's how science works.
1: I mean, yeah. But no, I mean, the bone thing, I mean, we all joke about it, but like, I think a lot of people have accidentally or done it on purpose. It's just our little secret, isn't it? As a as a group, as a group of archaeologists, don't do it, people. Um, yeah. You don't know what you're putting in your mouth.
2: No, no, don't lick the artifacts. No, 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 no. Right, so move swiftly away from not licking artifacts. Our last mythical creature are several, in a way, all known as divine chickens.
3: Yes, the divine chickens also known as the Lu'an. They are mythological birds in China. And I was trying to figure out if, because the words for chicken, is like, and rooster kind of interchangeable when you translate it from Chinese to English. But I think it's funnier to refer to them as chickens. I think they're cl- they're, technically they're closer to like a rooster. But yes, yeah, so the Luan are mythological birds in China and they include Jinji, which is the golden chicken, and Tianji, which is the heavenly chicken or the celestial chicken. So folklore from the Yunnan, the Guizhou, and the Giaoning provinces point to ancient secret pathways that are made by these chickens that you can see them in the ground in the stone themselves that the pathways they made walking around when in actuality they're basically dinosaur tracks which you know you can see in some sites there's famously places in England where you can see dinosaur tracks really well and obviously people who are unfamiliar with how kind of these tracks are made you know unsurprisingly, you would think something very strong and very powerful must have imprinted into stone. So that kind of instituted the logic leap into thinking these were probably divine beings and the way that dinosaur feet look, you know, again, they're chickens. So, yes. Divine Chicken Tracks, and they are actually used in certain rites, depending on which region you're in. Uh, One of them in particular is a local rite with dinosaur tracks that are believed to be from Jinji, where you would actually follow the track during a funeral procession, as it believed that the tracks led to heaven. So yeah, chickens are dinosaurs and dinosaurs are chickens, confirmed. Only truths on archaeo-animals. Yeah, it's, this is a kind of hot-hitting, breaking news stories you hear from archaeo-animals. And this is why people tune in to listen about divine chickens. And hilariously, when I was looking up about the divine chickens, I kept getting chicken recipes.
1: Were they divine?
3: No, yeah, they did look divine. <laughs> so as we think about Eating, I'm sorry, I don't want to say eating the golden chicken. I feel like that's going to insult my ancestors. Because we respectfully think about Jinji and Tianji, we will take a break and be back with our final segment of Case Studies.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage.
1: This one's going to Thailand.
0: And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at
3: shopify.com slash listen. And we are back with Archaeo Animals, episode 59. We're talking about the folklore of paleontology and zooarchaeology. And normally we'd say, this is the case studies part. But this whole episode's been case studies, so you should be in great ecstasy this whole time because it's the best it's been the best part of the podcast this whole time what more do you want to say?
2: right so i mean we've covered (laughs) uh some pretty like well-known heavy hitters in in mythology and i think we're probably going to keep it that way because uh along this with cyclops and unicorns we have the mythological creature that's found literally in every part of the world throughout history, and that is the dragon. Mm. Yeah, literally anywhere from medieval England to China, dragons are everywhere. Although they're mostly dinosaur fossils. Right, so for instance in China, dragon bones, long used for traditional Chinese medicine, refer to mine fossils from China's massive fossil beds, usually of various prehistoric species which are collectively called Lang. In Europe Dragon remains are likely dinosaur tracks in places like the Rhine Valley in Germany, which were
3: again interpreted as dragons. Speaking of Europe in Austria, Amon the Giant was said to have killed a dragon and have kept the dragon tongue as a trophy. And this was actually held in a local monastery for years. And then it turned out it was a swordfish nose. So
2: nose as in the, the actual Sword bit of the swordfish.
3: Yeah, yeah. Which I couldn't think of what it was called, so I just wrote nose. (laughs) How does that look like a tongue? I can see it, especially if the idea is that it's so old, it's desiccated. You know, I think even if people don't know, you know, the processes of taphonomy and the processes of decomposition, I think you would make that connection in your head of like, oh, it's old, so it's like a little shriveled and smaller, maybe. And it's just the tongue. It's like it could. I be- like the, the the swordfish things. They're really long. Mm, I mean, also, you know, conceptualizations of dragons have, even though they're more or less the same, they've changed over time and throughout cultures. It could be that you know it was a bit more of a serpentine type of dragon they were thinking about.
2: I mean, yes, to be fair, when you do say dragon, it does conjure up mostly the, the the images of dragons in medieval England. I guess is what it's in the common imagination what tends to pop up. Again, also in Austria in the later medieval period, a dragon skull was found in the 14th century and eventually used to make a like as a model to make a dragon statue statue in Klagenfurt in the 16th century, which actually turned out to be a woolly rhinoceros, Chelodon Antiquia antiquitatis.
3: I could see that as well. The like big mandible, big chunky
2: skull. And again, like depending on the depictions as well, like they do, like uh, dragons do, sometimes have little like tusks and horns. Once mm-hmm. the, the at the end of the snout, which again the woolly rhino it kind of matches up. You get in ancient Greece, take it back a couple thousand years, somewhat. Apollonius of Tiana travelled to modern day India and described dragon skulls. You have seen a pattern now, like the Greeks tend to think that a lot of the mythological creatures are actually living in India somewhere. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a thing. But the dragon skulls that he was describing are likely coming from a variety of an ex- extinct species of elephants and giraffes, including Elephasisudricus, sudricus, just the, the extinct elephant species, and yeah, two extinct species of giraffes, the Girafocerix and the Sivatherium.
3: Simona, can you do me a favor and are you able to look up what Gio Fogorex looks like? We just need a live reaction to this if possible. (laughs) It's it's just a big chunky
1: giraffe. (laughs) It's a big chunky giraffe. (laughs) Just uh, technical music while we're waiting for the reaction and it's a chunky giraffe. Can you send it? I want to see the chunky giraffe. How do you spell it?
2: It's G I R A double
1: y e x
2: It looks like a mix between a giraffe and this animal. This this extinct animal that
3: looks like it. It should be extinct.
1: So I'm describing it very poorly. It's like a giraffe in like high gravity.
3: Yeah, it's like, you know, when you you get those like inflatable animals, (laughs) that's what it looks like. Yeah,
1: it's like, it's like, it's like a giraffe that you haven't like, yeah, you haven't blown up the whole way. Like it's a deflated giraffe. It's amazing.
3: I love it. I've never seen this before in my life. And I'm so happy that I have. It's made my day, truly, to look at that. And I just wanted to share it with you all and all you out there listening to this episode. Also look it up and have have a little treat. But yeah, I mean, clearly you can understand why that would look like a dragon skull.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can see that. So I'm trying to find out the name of the animal that it reminds me of.
3: Is it also a giraffe? Partially. So while you you think about that, I'll move on to the next one. (laughs)
2: Yes, I I, I was trying to find this animal and I ended up on bush
3: babies instead,
2: which is really not what I'm after. So please.
3: (laughs) So yeah, similar pretty similar actually to dragons we have sea serpents the the dragons of the water as folks like to say no one no one says that that's just me and it's also like dragons they're found in a variety of folklore around the world from scandinavia to mesopotamia i believe we've talked a little bit about it in our episode on norse mythology so you can go listen to that But yeah, there's a couple of instances of sea serpents found in antiquity. It's believed that maybe fake serpents were made in antiquity by stretching out and combining several snake skins. Apparently, you can stretch a snake skin out really long. It's a very useful thing I learned today about that. But I guess it makes sense. There was a bit of a kind of tourism in antiquity that that could have been bit of a grift for, with the unicorn horns. <laughs> and also, Pliny the Elder, he's back, he's better than ever, folks. National treasure! <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> are
2: you okay? Yes. Just thinking about how the Vesuvius robbed us of Pliny the Elder.
3: Anyway, as always, his writings are illuminating as usual (laughs) and he described the discovery of the remains of the serpent that perseus killed to save andromeda in 58 bc which of course was probably a whale or shark bones as it was about 40 feet in length it may have also been a hybrid creation of whale and other fossil bones it's not really sure and there's loads of other kind of stories in antiquity of Kind of serpent sightings that were probably, you know, beached whales, carcasses like that, that people haven't really seen before. But interestingly, this kind of phenomenon of sea serpents isn't just something that happened in the past. Even in close, not modern day, but kind of closer to contemporary times, like the 19th century, there were still reports of sea serpent sightings and kind of recent research has been done on this uh, suggests that sea serpent sightings may have actually been influenced by the discovery of fossilized marine reptiles such as plesiosaurs in the 1800s so kind of a reverse of what we've been talking about this whole time so rather than people seeing a fossil and making up for you know using it to support the development of a folklore creature or mythological creature sea serpents which have already kind of exist in lore before have actually kind of melded into the this kind of popular conception because of the widespread discovery of plesiosaurs and creatures like that because you know in newspapers and reports they were described as ancient marine reptiles with long necks so this research that was done saw that over time after these discovery of these fossils was publicized sea serpent reports were less about describing them as eel-like creatures which is apparently what they used to be described as prior to the 1800s but they soon were described as having long necks a la your kind of Nessie, which
2: is really interesting because yeah, I guess the scientific discoveries have sort of found their way into like people's imagination. So as you said, we see the reverse where the evidence was moulded almost to fit the theory.
3: Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. And what's also interesting is at the same time, uh, Richard Owen, who was a British paleontologist, probably more well-known for being the person who coined the word dinosaur, had actually theorised at this time That maybe people's sightings of sea serpents were actually evidence that there were still surviving extinct animals like plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs, and mosasaurs, which, I mean, sounds silly, but you know, you don't know.
0: (laughs)
2: Going back to, uh, yeah, hybrid oxus.
3: Yeah. We uh, have one more h- hybrid hoax here. So to kind of wrap this up, in 1845, Albert Koch came to New York City and claimed to have a sea serpent that he caught near New England called the Hydraacos or something. I don't know. Say, Simone, you say it nice. Hydraakos? I don't know. It's not real. That's the point. It's not real. It was a hoax. It was made up. They took a uh, prehistoric whale. Basilosaurus and said that was a sea serpent. Apparently, even, like, the flippers were made out of shells. (laughs) I mean, he tried. He tried. He tried. And I believe this was not his only hoax. I think he did another hoax. So, I mean, again, you kind of respect the grind to the grift, grift grind, but didn't really. Before we
2: move on any further, I have some answers with regards to the the (laughs) Girafocke. Huge. Huge. Breaking news. Breaking news. Because what it reminded of is a, a giraffe and an okapi at a baby.
3: Okay, that no makes kapi,
2: sense. Look yes. it up. I Very mean of me described it as an animal that looks like it should be extinct. Because just, just just the way it looks, is sort of like the coloring and the stripes. It looks like a depiction of an animal that's gone extinct due to overhunting 200 years ago. But thankfully, the okapi is still alive and relatively
3: well, maybe. Is the okapi the one that looks like they put on zebra pants? Yes. And
2: interestingly, even though it does look zebra-like in terms it's of coloring, it's
3: closely related to the giraffe.
2: The giraffe is its closest relative. So,
3: do yeah. you want to know how I know that? Because I have gone multiple times to Disney's Animal Kingdom theme park. <laughs> and that's a fun fact, they tell you a lot on the safari ride. Thank you, Disney.
2: Okay. It turns, out the, it turns out the okapi is actually quite endangered, mainly due to habitat loss. So please spare yeah. a thought for the okapi.
3: They're very they're, they're beautiful. Maybe not as beautiful as that chunky giraffe that's extinct, <coughs> but you know, not everyone can be perfect, and that's fine. So yeah, we've talked this whole episode about all these. Wild mythical creatures, all these really interesting stories and theories of how people in the past may have made these connections and have used the past fossils to kind of develop and support mythologies and things like that. So that's great. That's amazing. Was it actually this influential on mythology, though? Apparently, this was actually a bit not necessarily contentious like other... Subjects in these fields, but there seems to be some pushback. I didn't actually know that before we did this episode. I mean, it's just one of those things of like how long is a piece of string? Yeah, it makes sense. And I, how how do you quantify that? So, yeah, not everyone is convinced. I think everyone agrees for the most part that, you know, there was definitely some inspiration and it makes sense in, in that, you know, someone would have found something and be like, Oh, that looks like X, Y, Z. But there are some academics, specifically classicists and also paleontologists who've kind of called for maybe a bit of caution in subscribing all folklore to this, you know, not necessarily going to the full extreme of, you know, all folklore is based off of fossils or whatever. Yeah. Cause I mean, as we discussed it before, like it,
2: if it is related to the discovery of skeletal it may, it remains of, say, like extinct megafauna, I mean, it could also like go one or two ways. You could be, you find an elephant skull, you find that bizarre, so you decide that it's a cyclops, and here the, the mythos of the cyclops is born. Or it could well be the other way around, as it was sort of the case for sea serpents in Europe. Where actually, like, the belief was already there and originated elsewhere. And then the discovery of remains is almost bent to fit the theory you already had. So that mythology was already in place. And then you find the skeletal remains and you go, oh, you see, that is proof of something that was already there.
3: Yeah. So, kind of real quickly, to kind of not necessarily debunk some of the fossil associations we talked about, but just to provide some counter evidence. So, with regards to the Cyclops, you know, People have pointed out that there's no written record of ancient Greeks actually finding the skulls that we've assumed they would also assume to be Cyclops. And also there's this notion that depictions of Cyclops in other artwork and in descriptions are often too human-like to account for all features of an elephant skull, like tusks and whatnot. And also not every Cyclops actually had just one eye. So it could be, again, that kind of the other way around that Simona was talking about as far as the Griffin theory with Protoceratops. The problem with that theory is that it ignores earlier lore from Western Asia from as early as the fourth millennium BC, and these kind of depictions of Griffins don't actually match the fossils. So there's one suggestion that maybe the Greeks picked up on Western Asian lore rather than fossil evidence. And there's also this idea that Griffins are better explained as being developed from hybrid creatures of living animals instead, and you don't necessarily need to have fossils to explain them. And again, like Cyclops, there doesn't really seem to be ancient Greek writings referencing these fossils. And finally, with dragons, the main issue is that modern-day assumption of dragons equaling dinosaurs mainly depend on modern-day conceptualizations of dragons. As we discussed earlier, ancient depictions of dragons were way more varied and not always very dragon-like. So, at the end of the day, who knows? but it's interesting. I think it's in, regardless, I think it's an interesting thought experiment and I think it's also an interesting way to think about how people in the past looked at stuff that they may not necessarily had the tools uh, and knowledge to kind of investigate. Yeah. So what do you think? Let us know. Yeah, because we are on Twitter at archeoanimals. We are on the archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash animals. That's where you can find us online. But you can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you like, you subscribe, you tell your friends to subscribe, and you let us know if there are any other episodes that you'd like us to cover. We love doing recommendations. Our last episode was one. And yeah, I think that is it. I'm going to think about the divine chicken and get hungry. I don't know about you guys, but as always, it's been Alex Fitzpatrick. Patrick. It's a falanga, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye
2: listening to RQ Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at RQ Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts, and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the RQ Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
0: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media and the Archaeology Podcast Network and was edited by Chris Webster.
3: This has been a presentation
2: of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other
1: podcasts at www.archepodnet.com. Contact us at
3: chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.